This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. My name is Chris Nee, and to me, family is a social structure and, and a chosen group of people who show up in your life for good and for bad. Hello, and welcome to We Are Family. I am here with the children's TV writer and producer, Chris Nee. She is known as the creator of Doc McStuffins, but she's also the person behind such hit kids' TV shows as Ridley Jones, Vampirina, We the People, and now Ada Twist Scientist both of which those last ones were produced with the Obamas. She's also mom to son Theo. Chris, thanks so much for coming on We Are Family. I am so excited to be here. Oh my goodness. So first off, we were just talking about this before we hit record, but I have to start by saying I was a brown ledger and Chris knows what that means. It's a beautiful camp on Lake Champlain. It's a camp that might be a cult. We're not really sure. (laughs) (laughs) So all of my friends know about Brown Lounge because I won't shut up about it since, I mean, like my entire adult life. It's my happy place. It's my favorite place. It's a camp for girls. And so for everyone who's listening and doesn't know about Brown Lounge, at its heart is it's really empowering girls to choose what they want to do. And it really felt like it kind of set me up for life in that way. So clearly, I've been following your career for a really long time. I'm super excited to have you here because I've been like, I knew Chris Nee when she was at Brown Lounge. But Chris, I'd love to kind of hear you talk just about how Brownledge was a part of your life and also how that set your career path or influenced you in in any way? Oh, it absolutely did. For me, I think of it as the place that kept me going during the summers so that I could get through the years and get to the point where I had grown up and could go find my people in the world. Started there in 1979. Um, I graduated from high school in 1987. And uh, I knew there was something different about me. And it was a place that was insanely accepting. And it was a place where I didn't have to name what it was that felt like I didn't fit in in other spaces uh, because I was so incredibly accepted. And the other thing, which I, being a parent now, it was a place that expected a lot of you. And I struggle as a parent in the world of progressive education and sometimes wanting someone to just be like, do better. (laughs) <laughs> learn this right. stuff, um, oh, you know, practice for hours, get there. Because I have both sides in my in my little heart. I do find there are a lot of people with just a real focus and drive that come out of that space, because I think that I think that freedom allows you to find out that you can be obsessed with things and go down rabbit holes and work really, really hard even during your summer and the joy of achieving after putting in so much work. Totally. And listen, I could talk about Brownledge forever. And my friend, my friends listening will be laughing because they're going to be rolling their eyes because they're going to be like, Julia, here we go again. We won't sing any camp songs. That's the yeah, important we, thing. Or will we? No. Um, <laughs> so, but we're here also, to, obviously, also to talk about your new show, which is so exciting. Can you tell me a little bit about Ada Twist Scientist and the character and, and your inspiration for it? Yeah, I mean, it's such an exciting project and it looks so gorgeous. This was a project that when I came to Netflix, I was aware of the book series. Uh, This is obviously based on a book series by Andrea Beatty. And you can't not 
see those books and have them have an impact. They're, they're visually so stunning. What I love is that there's a tone to them that has this really precocious girl who is not afraid to be the smartest girl in the room. Um, but it also shows like the very first book shows the parents being a little exasperated with her. And I love that because there's like a, the hint of what is real, which is always what I'm going after that having a kid who says why all the time can drive you a little nuts. And then you figure out how to encourage your kid and, and explore the things that they're excited about. So there was something about the book that had always stuck out to me when I got to Netflix, you know, I have the very sort of pinch yourself experience of having the Obamas ask me if I would take on this project. And what's funny is I actually kind of said no for a little while because what you said no to the Obamas. (laughs) I know. (laughs) But I didn't want to take on a project that I didn't think I could bring something special to. And my worry at the beginning was that with it being a science show, that it was going to end up being one of those shows that was like two tablespoons of this, one teaspoon of this, and you've made, you know, a volcano. And I was like, I'm not interested in that stuff. If you watch my work, it's very emotionally based. I am trying to figure out the world. I mean, really, if I'm honest, I'm trying to figure out my world from 30 years ago. I'm still, I have a great facility to remember the feelings of childhood and loneliness and confusion that I think most kids actually do feel. But a lot of adults, I think, forget that. They, they remember mm-hmm. it in a, in a sort of separated way. And I, I think the great children's writers actually can remember and touch those feelings. So uh, the Pure Science show didn't, I just was like, sure, I get it. I think it's a great show. But if I don't think I can bring something to it, I don't know if I'm the right person. Mm-hmm. And in having discussions, we started to talk about the emotions of science And that science is one of the only disciplines that really talks about grit, which I think is so important for kids. And the idea that failure, it's one of the only disciplines that failure is an absolutely essential part. And and it is not considered failure. It's considered the step that is on the path to whatever will be success because you have learned so much during that. And most disciplines do not deal with failure that way. And for me, that became a way to look at this show in which I could see so many life lessons um, through the lens of scientific thinking. And then I was like, okay, I'm in. I get this show. So I finally said yes to Mrs. Obama. (laughs) (laughs) That is so awesome. And I feel like so many of your shows and your characters from Ada to Doc McStuffins and really Jones, they feature such fantastically diverse characters, like ethnically diverse, gender diverse, queer characters, It feels like that's really at the heart. It's so important to what you do. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your upbringing and your childhood and, you know, how becoming the adult that you are today potentially influenced that. Yeah, I mean, I was, um, again, I was a queer kid in the the 70s and 80s, uh, but there was no language for that then. I came out in 1988. Elton John wasn't out yet. (laughs) Liberace wasn't out yet. Like there was no path. You were a distinct um, and clear outsider by sort of saying your truth. And I did at the age of, uh, I was either 18 or 19. It might've been right into my 19th year. And so I had a real chip on my shoulder. I didn't, I did not fit in. I had divorced parents and it was, you know, it was not happy divorce. And my mom Mm -hmm who loved the arts and I will say was incredible, like introduced me to high art to she loves opera and the ballet and 
Um, and I went into the city and saw pretty much every show on Broadway for years and years and years. And so I kind of saw everything. And my mother exposed me. Like the only thing I wasn't allowed to see was nine because there was actual nudity on, on stage. But other than that, <laughs> I saw everything. I saw every performer, every play, mm. not just the musicals. So I'm so grateful for her for that. I also, like many kids, you know, my mom was, she was working a full-time job supporting us and getting a master's at night. I did not understand the incredible load that she was lifting, but I was a latchkey kid who felt very on the outside. I would say that the, the, the recurring theme in my work is I'm really writing about communities and what it is to be accepted when you are not the same. And it's interesting for animation, when you're talking about toys, you actually want all the toys to look the same, right? And so I'm always right. coming in and going, yeah, but uh, I want the plastic squeaky toy next to the soft plush toy. Next to like, I want, the, I want all of these things to be really different because that's the thing I'm representing. And I'm definitely trying to write the world as I want it to be. That said, and, and you know, I've said this many times before, but it's really true, you know, people tend to ask, like, who are you writing for? And you're, you're kind of supposed to say, like, I'm writing for the children. Like, I'm writing for the child on the street out in front of me right now walking the dog. But I'm not. I'm 100% writing my own pain. Um, and I, I, I carry open wounds from having felt very, very on the outside and uncomfortable with myself. Uh, so I certainly know what it is to not see myself. To be honest, we're just at the point where I'm, you know, who I am is showing up at all in kids <laughs> uh, programming. Right. It's still not easy. So I know what that is. And and if I'm really honest, the reason that that I became so focused on racial diversity so early, I could make those changes. Mm -hmm. I couldn't represent my own family, but I knew that there were so many other groups that were not seeing themselves on screen. And I had the opportunity to make choices to change that. And, and it just became baked into my mission. What was your kind of journey? Did you ever feel like you were pressured to kind of fit in with certain stereotypes, gender stereotypes, or, you know, like feeling like getting into to Hollywood and into acting and, and, and writing? There must have been some times where you just felt like, hey, I want to be myself, but I'm getting pressure not to be. For sure. That said, I definitely was not, a like, it did not really have a conformist soul in me. <laughs> and, I, and I will say that, like, I was very ostracized from mainstream life. You know, when I came out, my parents were worried that I wouldn't get a job. I wouldn't be able to get a job. It certainly meant that I was aware of this from very early on. I wasn't going to be the person who got invited to the to the brunches and that's how you're going to get somewhere in your career is sort of being the, I'm so like everyone else. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm going to kind of get enveloped into all of those things that happen outside of the business side of things that, you know, is, is how people sort of naturally move up through their career. So I did feel mm -hmm. like I have to be so good at what I do that it doesn't matter that I'm not going to be at the baby shower because I'm not going to get invited to those things. Now, the world has changed in many, many ways. But yeah, I didn't see a lot of people like myself. To be honest, in animation, you also didn't see a lot of women, right? When I came into this business. But there certainly were not a lot of people who I was looking at in terms of my peers and saying like, well, that person has definitely been on a similar road to me. <laughs> yeah, and to a certain extent, a lot of that stuff I had to, I had to mask for many years in this business. 
I think it's always a surprise that I'm the person behind these very big, big far-reaching shows. I believe that in, in, in a the long run, I can continue to make substantive changes that will help expand people's perspectives. Mm-hmm. So I do think the work that I do is incredibly important, but it's it's been hard waiting to get to talk about my own family. <laughs> right, totally. You talked at the top of the show about the concept of found family or family not necessarily always being biological. And that's something we talk about a lot on the show. Who would you consider part of your family over the years and how has that changed? And growing up, did you feel like you had to find that kind of non-biological found family when your own family wasn't necessarily meeting your needs? Absolutely. Which I think is a very, you know, classic kind of queer experience. You know, my biological family is has very much come around, has gone through the journey that many people in our country have come through. And that's a beautiful thing. But I think there is a very clear sense in many people who live sometimes on the fringes of what is, you know, mainstream society, where it's your friends who uh, they don't function just as friends. And we live in a country where a lot of people also move very far away from their families. And, you know, I'm a New Yorker who lives in L.A. because that's where the work is. I didn't intend to stay here for 20 years. Uh, But you have to then build that community around you who are going to act in the way that our villages used to. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So now your son, Theo, he's a teenager, right? He he turns 15 in a couple of weeks. Oh, my goodness. So can you talk a little bit about your journey to to motherhood? So his moms are you and and your ex-wife, Lisa, is that right? Yes. Yeah. You know, I I think for us, we were both kind of on the older side. Uh, My ex is 10 years older than I am. And I think we're both sort of starting to see that space where parenthood could disappear. And, And I will say that around the time that we had Theo... All of the gays were having kids, um, but I remember even 10 years before that, it was sort of not like people, that was not what people's goals were because it didn't feel all that accessible, but I always wanted to be a mom, just mm-hmm. always clearly, even, you know, sort of my hardcore days in the East Village, with my head shaved, I'd be like, but I want to be a mom. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Um, so I was glad that the world kind of caught up with all of that. And, you know, Theo is a delight. And it's a beautiful thing that we're actually in a place where I, uh, and not that I have any sense that there isn't a lot of 
danger out there in the world. Um, and, and a lot of people who want to roll certain clocks back, but for the Mm -hmm. most part, he lives a life that is not couched in the idea of, of the struggle because actually he goes to school with like so many kids with same sex parents. Mm. Um, you know, the world has just drastically changed and it's funny when you get to the age where you start to be like, Oh, I think I'm a little behind. Um, yeah. I, I told this story of being in a car. This was when my, uh, Theo was probably, I think he was in fourth grade, maybe fifth grade. And it was like the four boys in the back of the car and you just shut up and try to like, listen to what the heck they're talking about. And right. at some point I realized that they were talking about another kid in their class and they were, they had repeatedly called him gay and, but there was nothing bad about what they were saying. It was, it was sort of a supportive use of the word. And I will say that he was a kid who I would guess probably there was a very good chance that at some point he was going to come out. So mm-hmm. I was sitting at the front and thinking like, oh, there's a, there's a teaching moment here, but also there's, they're not saying anything bad. And I don't know if I should get in. Finally, I was like, no, I'm going to jump in. I said, guys, I just want to, um, I got I'm going to jump in for a second. I want to commend you because I can hear that there's nothing bad to you about the word gay. So uh, I, I, I'm like, that's so great to hear. It's such a supportive group back there. This is going to be a little bit of a nuanced idea. And I'm thinking I'm doing great parenting. I said, you know, you have to kind of wait until someone declares themselves as gay before you use that label for them. Right. So there's just kind of this silence in the back of the house. Like, man, I just made a really good nuanced point. And then finally <laughs> someone said, well, you know, we're calling him gay because he 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 says he's gay. He he came out, and I was like, oh oh, oh, oh carry on. Like, like it just occurred to me. We're in the world. We're like, they're calling him gay wow. because he's gay and because he's, he's out. out. And yeah, that's and, amazing. <laughs> but just like, oh right, I was, I'm sorry. Never mind. Uh, the '80s are calling. Uh, you guys carry on. I'm just like, I'm just not. I'm not up to speed. Exactly. <laughs> oh my God. You know what? Their generation is giving me so much hope. I feel like totally. they are so with it and they are so ahead of us in so many ways. And I, yeah. they are, I think they are going to hopefully be our, our saviors. But um, yeah, I was laughing because Tan France from Queer Eye was on an episode of this podcast earlier and he joked that he would have to teach his son about straight relationships. Like, you know, like in terms of what books to read, he's like, I need to find the books that are like this. There are other families out there that aren't like me and my husband. You know, it's 100%. like, it's interesting that it's like, the reversal and it's encouraging, I guess. So then did you have any conversations with Theo about sexuality and gender and like what those looked like? Or did you kind of like let him take the lead on that? How did you approach that? No, we actually talked very openly about it. And to be honest, there was sort of a funny, like he, he just would not name who and what he was, except it was a constant, like hilarious conversation. (laughs) And he just recently kind of came out as straight and it's beautiful to have those conversations and also kind of an amazing thing that that was the, that was the viewpoint that he had to felt like he needed to like (laughs) come out as straight, right? Yeah. But yeah, we have a very open conversation. And and obviously the last four years, he's, he's aware we have traveled around the world. And for the most part, we have good, we've had a good interactions in this world, but he doesn't not know that his moms can be targeted at times. I think his life in LA is very, very normal. Um, I think he's got like incredible groups of extended family for whom we are no different than anyone else. Um, at this point, we're no different as a divorced family than anyone else. You know, I think any kids growing up in any sort of other viewpoint, BIPOC, Indigenous, LGBTQ, it's been hard to go through the 
Trump years. Yes. And hear the vitriol. These kids have had a lot of trauma. Absolutely. That on top of the pandemic. But like in the fact yep. that, you know, you see them having these great conversations and being so mature about it and like, you know, being so, such strong representatives of their generation and activists. It's just really yeah. impressive. And I feel like we don't give that generation enough credit for everything they're doing. Well, again, this may be my old upbringing and it really sounds like sort of my upbringing from the 1800s. But like, I do believe adversity can be a great crap catalyst for, mm. uh, for change and focus and purpose and greatness. I think one of the things that I actually am the most hopeful about is that this generation has gone not unscathed at all. And mm. I believe those are the sort of flames out of which greatness comes. Yeah, no, I think that's beautiful um, thought. So then I want to just talk real quick about your, so is your, does your partner have kids or do you have a blended family? Do you co-parent with your ex-wife, Lisa? What does that look like? I'm a divorced mom too. So I co-parent with my yeah. daughter and she goes back and forth be- between two homes. So just wondered what, how it looks like for you. Yeah, we have um, 50-50 custody. That's it. We're necessarily co-parenting, but we're, we're, we're coexisting. But, you know, he's amazing and he, he, I, I, you know, has, has a really full and rich life in both places because I, you know, the complications of life, my, my partner is also has kids and lives in Chicago. Uh, we're waiting for all of our kids to graduate um, so that we can be in the same place, but we are, we are back and forth okay. uh, to both That's spaces. Hot. But it's, um, and during a pandemic, don't add a pandemic to all that. So what? Oh, my God. But you know what? That's a side effect of co-parenting no one talks about enough. The fact that you're kind of, wherever your kid's in school or whatatever, wherever your, your yes. the other parent is, you kind of have to sort of stay put. And if you meet somebody yes. who lives somewhere else, you're kind of shit out of luck, other than having to do this, like, long distance thing. 100%. We are, and by the way, nobody wants to be in a freaking long distance relationship in their 50s. But it is a hard, I mean, there's... The modern parenting structure. I mean, on Ada Twist, one of the things that that I really wanted to do was have one of the main characters have a beautiful representation of co-parenting uh, divorced parents. And mm-hmm. because I think there are so many kids who are living in that back and forth between two houses, and I don't see a ton of representation of it. Iggy's parents... Uh, you know, he lives in two places and he talks about it. It's often just a throwaway line of like, oh, I left that at the other house or this is, you know, which is so the reality for these kids. And one of the very first main episodes that we that we sort of meet the parents, we actually realized that Iggy's mom is, does not have a green thumb and the garden that she loved that clearly the dad had been taken care of has kind of fallen apart and the kids decide to use science to make it work. But what they do is they're having trouble and they go to the dad and he said, oh, my God, I want to help your mom do this. And he helps them figure it out. And you see this really loving, really functional co-parenting relationship. And I think about all the kids who are living in this family structure who are not seeing it represented. I think we so often, much more often see like a single parent than see this uh, structure. And so... Those are places where just as a creator, I'm always looking for what's the choice I can make that's different and that lets somebody who has not been seeing themselves on screen feel seen. Oh my God. All the snaps. I'm lit- this is yeah. making me so emotional right now because it's so true. <laughs> yeah. I can't wait. And I it's cannot so wait for my daughter to watch it because 
I have been thinking that for a long time that she just doesn't have enough representation out there of family setups yeah. like we have, where she has two houses and she's always leaving things behind. And but her, but I have a good relationship with her dad, so he comes and helps me. So oh my goodness, I cannot wait for her to watch. I'm so excited. So the last thing I, we always ask everybody, and just to leave it uh, on the note of looking to the future, what kind of hopes do you have for your family over the next few years? I know that probably to be in one place for starters. <laughs> I was going to say that's just easy. I- I would like to, you know, stitch Chicago to. Um, and look, one of the things we talk a lot about is not not being in the rush to get there because we also, I mean, the thing that is central to us is we both adore our kids. It's not a question. And I look back at the old version of divorce where dads would just leave and um, right. and maybe see their kids. Like, I don't even understand that. And so it's not a question for us. And we don't want to feel like we're rushing to get through the beauty of like our kids in high school, as hard as it is to sort of be separated from each other as much as we are. I mean, we go back and forth quite a bit, Mm -hmm. but um, so yes, that would be my grand hope for the family. But I I also just, I I do actually hope that the world continues to represent, you know, all of the different family structures, um, all of the diversity that, that exists in our world and represents it in ways that, the call to action for us to act like community again. Um, I, you know, I briefly alluded to the idea of the village and I don't know how we as a country ever get back to that sense of what it is to really take care of the people on your block, the people in your township, the people, and to actually have cares outside of who your family unit is Mm -hmm. because you think the larger society around you benefits and that you benefit from being invested in groups of uh, social structures that are around you. But that's definitely, you know, a lot of what my shows and work are doing that Ridley Jones is a hundred percent about a space where characters have actually different wants and needs. And how do they, um, how do they negotiate those wants and needs and yet still act as a unified whole in this museum with Ada I just want to empower girls and empower people who who are not used to seeing the dream of themselves in certain places to say, go achieve what you want to achieve because anyone can get there. And, and those things are just hugely important to me. That's so great. Chris, it's been so great to chat. This has just been so wonderful. Fantastic. I so appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with writer and producer Chris Nee. Next time, you'll hear from actor and comedian Asif Manvi about being raised away from his parents until he was three and how that has impacted his own parenting, especially as an older dad. Be sure to follow We Are Family on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you don't miss an episode. And we'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. You can also find us online at parents.com slash wearefamilypodcast. We Are Family is presented by me, Julia Dennison, and produced by Sam Walker. Editing is by Vincent Cachione, and thanks also to the rest of our production team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, and Danielle Roth. We'll see you back here next week for more We Are Family. <laughs> <laughs>